When we think of the Christmas story, we almost always immediately think of Mary and Joseph. We think of their long journey to Bethlehem for the census, how there was no room for them in the inn. We think about the baby Jesus being wrapped in cloth and laid in a feeding trough for his first bed. And for so many people, the story is that simple, and the story ends there. But we know the story of Christmas is much more significant than that. The prologue to the Gospel of John serves as a profoundly rich theological account of the Incarnation, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, the story of the Word becoming flesh. I invite you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14, and as well at verse 18. But before I read it, let's take a moment to calm and still our hearts. And let's ask the Lord to speak his truth through his word to us this morning. meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 and verse 18. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light. So that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. John's prologue presents the Christmas story in a way in which we could explain the profound truth that we celebrate this season in four words. The word became flesh. 
John Piper describes the Gospel of John as a portrait of Jesus Christ and his saving work focusing on the last three years of his life, and especially on his death and resurrection. John himself makes his purpose clear in his gospel. In in chapter 20, he writes, Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in him. And he begins his gospel by writing about the Incarnation. As we look a little more in depth at this text, we're going to focus on three attributes of the greatness of Christ that John presents in his prologue. And then we'll look at how we think about how we move forward from this Advent conspiracy into the new year in light of the Incarnation. First, let's look at John's claim that Jesus is God. Verses 1 and 2 say, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The first question to ask from these two verses is, who is the Word? The simple answer to the question is Jesus. This becomes increasingly evident as the prologue unfolds. So why, in his opening remarks, would John refer to Jesus as the Word? By referring to Jesus as the word, John is making a statement about the divine nature of Jesus. John's writing primarily to two audiences, a Jewish audience and a Greek audience. The term, the word, in the Greek is the logos. The word, or the logos, conveys the notion of divine self-expression or speech. And it has a rich Old Testament background. God's word is active. God speaks and things come into being. By starting the prologue with the three words that he's chosen, in the beginning, the Jewish audience would immediately be thinking back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God says, let there be light, and there was light. John is connecting the word to an event that would be significant to a Jewish audience. To the Greek audience, the Logos is a philosophical concept as an impersonal principle of reason that gave order to the universe. It is said that Plato, the Greek philosopher, once proposed to his students, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a Logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. John is playing to the philosophical intellect of the Greeks, saying we have seen the Logos, the one who gives reason and order to the universe, and we have seen him in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the Word. These first two verses also tell us that the Word was with God from the beginning, which means that Christ's existence transcends time as we know it. Christ was not created at his birth. This text tells us that before he was made flesh, he was with God, and he was God. In the statement, we have some of the foundations of the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, from these, two, from these first two verses, we can see that John lays out his understanding of the Incarnation. Jesus is the Word, 
The Word was there at the beginning. The Word was with God. The Word was God. John is telling us that Jesus is fully God. The second thing that John tells us is that Jesus is the Creator. Once John has identified the Word with God, he continues to look at the relationship of Jesus with the world. Verses 3 through 5 read, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. When we think of God, we almost immediately think of him as creator. So when John says that through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made, he is telling us that outside of himself, outside of Jesus, nothing has existed eternally. And he's saying that God the Father carried out the work of creation through the activity of the Son. This verse disproves any notion that the Son could be a created being, because through him all things were made, and without him nothing has been made that has been made. In verse 3, we see Jesus as creator, and in verses 4 and 5, John continues to draw off the creation motif by describing Jesus as the light that shines out into the darkness. Now, John is not speaking of the physical creation at this point, but he's speaking more of the spiritual darkness of the world. John is suggesting that the darkness cannot overcome the word. This theme gives us some hints to the struggle between light and darkness that will sound throughout the gospel. The opposition to Jesus will be severe. The world that Jesus enters and loves is a world of remarkable unbelief. Those opposed to the light will go to drastic measures to defeat the light. But in the midst of the attempts to defeat, John's prelude tells that as the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. John is thinking about the cross, the place where darkness attempted to snuff out the light of the world. But as the gospel will show, the cross is not a place of defeat, but rather a place of glory. Thirdly, John tells us that Jesus is fully man. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. What we have in this verse is the telling of one of the most significant moments in the history of the world. The incarnation, the story that we celebrate on Christmas, God becoming man while fully remaining God. This is sometimes referred to by theologians as the hypostatic union. And the term sounds fancy, but it's much easier to understand than it sounds. And the concept is rich in theology. The adjective hypostatic comes from the noun hypostasis, which means personal, in reference to the personal substance or essential nature of an individual. So hypostatic union is the personal union of Jesus' two natures. He is fully human, and he is fully divine. What the doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches is that these two natures are united in one person. 
And within this, there is an amazing gospel-drenched revelation that the reason Jesus became the God-man was for us. His fully human nature joined in personal union to his eternally divine nature as proof that Jesus, in perfect harmony with his Father, is for us. He has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he took on our nature to his one person and died for us. Moving on, notice in verse 14, in in the text it says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. John is once again keeping his mind his Jewish readers here. The, The Greek for dwelling more literally means pitched his tent or tabernacle. And it serves as an allusion to God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle in the book of Exodus. God had manifested his presence to his people in the tabernacle and in the temple. And now God has taken up residence among his people in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. Thus, the coming of Christ fulfills the Old Testament symbolism for God's dwelling with man in the tabernacle and the temple. And later, through the Holy Spirit, Christ makes into a temple both the church and the Christian body. And Jesus takes on this role so that he might reveal the Father's love for us and so that we might become children of God. Verse 18 from our text says, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. John concludes the prologue by emphasizing what he tells us in verse 1. Jesus as the Word is God. And he has revealed and explained God to humanity through his teaching and through his servant. This is one of the most amazing events in all of history. The eternal, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, and infinitely holy Son of God took on human nature and lived among humanity so that we might know the Father. Verse 12 tells us, but to all who did receive him, Who believed in his name, he gave the right to be children of God. So now that I've outlined briefly some of the major theological claims that John is making about the incarnation in this prologue, the question needs to be asked, what does this mean for us today? The season of Advent, while it falls at the end of the calendar year, actually marks the beginning of the church year. Typically around the new year, many of us practice the tradition of New Year's resolutions. We do a self-examination of our lives and decide what things we want to be better at in the year to come. And in a way, that's kind of what we've been doing as a church family over this Advent season. We as a church have participated in the Advent conspiracy. And the motivation behind this series was so that we as a community of Christ followers would begin to think about our Christmas celebrations differently. Each week we looked at a different theme, worship fully, spend less, give more, and we culminated at Christmas Eve with love all. Living in light in the fact, living in light of the fact that the word became flesh and dwelt among us should motivate us to worship fully, spend less, give more, And love all, not only as we celebrate Christmas, but as we live out every day of our lives.
Last week, Mike reminded us that the point of all of this is not to make our celebrations of Christmas smaller, but bigger and more significant. The incarnation calls us to worship, to celebrate and rejoice in the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us. The creator becoming like the created for the sake of the created, so that we might be reconciled to God the Father. The Christmas story is a reminder of God's goodness, of his grace and his mercy. It's a gospel message that demands a response of worship. But that worship is not limited to our corporate gatherings, but rather worship that extends outside of the church walls and into the way in which we live out our lives daily in our communities. When we think of the themes, spend less and give more, the goal hasn't been to, as Nathan illustrated in his message that kicked off our series, the goal is not to become Christmas Grinches when it comes to celebrating Christmas, but rather to find ways to make our giving more significant and to give in a way that reflects the reason that we celebrate. We spend a lot of time and energy worrying about storing up earthly treasures, When the one that we celebrate, the creator of the heavens and earth, left his heavenly kingdom to become one of us. To show us what it means to serve and to store up our treasures in heaven. We see this in Jesus. Jesus wasn't about storing up earthly treasures. He didn't come to the earth to establish an earthly kingdom. He came to show us that there is so much more than that. He came to love, to heal to serve, and to sacrifice. Jesus shows us what it means to worship fully and to give more. Jesus gives us the ultimate gift in that he paid the debt of our sin. And finally, just as Christ's life shows us sacrificial giving, it also shows us that we are to love all. God's word tells us time and again that followers of Christ are to love God and to love their neighbors as, them, as themselves. But we're also told to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. As Christ is being crucified, he's being mocked by the crowds, and what does he do? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Martin Luther King Jr., in a sermon titled, Love Your Enemies, speaks to the redemptive power of love. And this is what he says. Now there's a final reason I think that Jesus says love your enemies, and it is this, that love has within it a redemptive power. And there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them and they can't stand it too long. Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with guilt feelings and sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's love, you see. It is redemptive, and this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. God's love is redemptive. His love for us resulted in the amazing truth that we celebrate in the Incarnation. And living in light of the incarnation calls us in response to love all as he has loved all. 
I'm well aware that this is a lot easier said than done. Much of what we've talked about over the last four weeks goes against what the world teaches us. But that's the goodness of the gospel, right? The world tells us we get what we deserve as if it's a good thing. But the reality is, if we got what we deserved, there would be no gospel. There would be no incarnation. There would be no Christmas. What makes the gospel so amazing and so foreign to our culture is the fact that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve condemnation, and yet we receive grace. And so, as receivers of this good news, as people who are sons and daughters of the King, we are called to live our lives in accordance to that good news. We're called to worship fully, to spend less, to give more, and to love all. Not only during the Christmas season, but in all seasons, at all times. Just a few days ago, I read a post on the Gospel Coalition blog titled, The Shocking Implications of the Incarnation. And I love how the author concluded the article. This is what she wrote. When we live in light of the incarnation of Christ, our lives will be shocking to others. Although we are sons and daughters of the King, we will humiliate ourselves by serving others. All things may be permissible, but we will deny ourselves certain things or activities so that we can grow in our love for God and for others. We will earn money, but we will strategize how to give it away for the sake of the kingdom. Living in a physical world, we will spend more effort on cultivating our inner beauty than our outer beauty. We will trust in the promises of God more than our circumstances because we know he is for us. When we live this way, people will think we are ludicrous. They will find our choices shocking, yet we will point to the miracle of the incarnation of Christ. Our lives will testify to the great news of Advent. Christ has come. God is with us. Can you imagine what our communities, what our world would look like if all Christians lived in light of this? This is what the incarnation calls us to. This is what we celebrate in the season of Christmas. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Christ has come. Emmanuel, our God, is with us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true, that your word is active. And Lord, that we thank you that when we deserved condemnation, you sent your son to this earth so that we might be reconciled to you. We thank you for uh, the implications of the incarnation. We thank you for what it calls us to. And Lord, we know that it's not an easy task to follow, but we know that it is worthwhile. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. And Lord, I ask that you would equip us by your spirit um, to go from this place to be communicators, to be agents of your gospel, to be agents of your light in a world of darkness. 
Lord, would you equip us to do your work as you see fit? And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand together as we respond to God's word.